I had been very expressive as a child, a very young child. And part of that was to address a challenge. And my first one is, as an, as an African-American child born of African-American parents, but born in Augsburg, Germany in 1956, right there was a combination that was uh, atypical and challenging. Uh, for all the various reasons, for culturally, uh, socially, economically, the U.S. occupied Germany. To be born in the midst of that sets you off in a way that requires you to try to explain it. <laughs> and so coming back to the States in 1960 at the age of four, and it being then my first experience in America, with a kind of mixture of both English and German and certainly um, acculturation to somewhere else, the only thing that filled in that gap was being creative. That is Dominique Moody, graciously granting us one of the most remote interviews I've ever done. This whole episode is live from the inside of her art project and was recorded using what we had on hand, so apologies for the potato-like quality of this particular episode, but it'll all make sense in the end. I'm Megan Flanders, and this is Season 2, Episode 1 of How the Art World Works. And so I found by using it, I would get people who typically would not interact with me to interact and I felt that that was a good thing and so to keep that up was important but the way a four-year-old might think about it is one thing today the way I think about it is the arts are a language in and of themselves and it can be a very universal language you know over time i continue to move. I can't, you know, I have lived on the East Coast. I have, for more than 20 years, the West Coast in Northern California for more than 20 years, and now Southern California for more than 20 years. So at, as of two days ago, I turned 62. Getting to that point um, has, you know, and especially getting to that point and maintaining the fact that I am still to this day a creative person, that I've lived my life in the practice of creativity. Uh, you don't get there by stumbling into it. You get there by having to fight for it. And I've had many of them. Uh, some of the most obvious ones um, being, you know, a black woman. <laughs> Uh, that is the, you know, but at the same time, there are others that are not as obvious and ones that happen and evolved over time. Uh, another one, too, that, you know, most people don't quite know where artists fit in in the economic and social spectrum, especially in the West. There's not a defined space for us. And whatever space you get, 
is one you had to find and and create. And because of that, uh, there is an economic difference. And that economic difference, um, the one thing you can't do is it allow it to stop you doing what you're doing because what I think of as art is not a chosen career. It is a a passionate core of who you are. And so in order to to continue in that space, uh, you have to make certain decisions. And not all of them fit comfortably in the economic model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So people want rent every month? <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> right. <laughs> you mean I can actually eat every day. Right. I'm supposed it's to. It's real food. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I do. I have to give up my dinner for pain. Yep, sometimes. And you might have to. And so, although those things should not necessarily socially be the the parameters for artists to have to quote unquote starve, the reality is for certain generations of artists. They absolutely had to make those decisions. And early on, I certainly had to do my share of that. Um, but it has, uh, it has strengthened me having gone through it um, in ways that require me to be not just creative, you know, in terms of my medium, uh, creative, but creative in terms of my overall life that I, everything I, I chose to do and has to be a creative decision. One often outside of the norm. Mm-hmm. And, and so I found myself comfortable in that because I spent a life outside of the norm. I used to, you know, ask my mother as a, as a preteen, why can't I just be normal? <laughs> Did she have an answer? Yes, she did. Oh. She said, there hasn't been a day in your life or prior to your birth that you've been normal. Oh, <laughs> I like mama. And she <laughs> said, good advice. because that is special and important, um, you have something you may not be able to quite understand it now, but that... Um, outside of the norm part of you is going to uh, you know kind of position you well later on once you become it's going to help you flourish in, in term, yeah to terms with it yeah um everything from my name you know <laughs> and to the place of birth to the circumstances of my birth everything has taken a step from that and none of it fits on the spectrum where you expect it to so being off the spectrum (laughs) I decided to kind of embrace it but the biggest embrace was in my late 20s I mean I had done things I graduated from high school at 15 became an emancipated minor moved to New York to go to art school at Pratt Institute at the age of 16 and live on my own in that city in the mid-70s where that city was nothing nice. Nope. 
it was not considered the big apple that everybody wanted to be in. It was a very tough, tough place um, where they had a billboard that measured the population of, of roaches and rats to the human population yeah. as you went across the Brooklyn Bridge. I remember that. <laughs> right? I remember that. And so this was not so an embracing <laughs> place to be, especially to be a minor. Mm-hmm. But if that doesn't strengthen you, mm-hmm. and I couldn't really afford Pratt Institute um, and, and work three jobs, all of them under the table. Nobody can afford Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's still true. And... <laughs> And so, as this miner trying to work in that city, I did butterfly mounting. I did an African boutique um, display um, and and buying for and. and You're like y'all know I I like started in Germany, right? Right. Just making sure. Just making sure. (laughs) This is my resume. Yeah. Right. And it always caught them butterfly mounting. No matter what interview I had, no matter where, I always put that up top because I would get a smile out of it. Because it's so unique. Yes. Yep. Number one, what the heck is it? Yeah. Starts a conversation. It -hmm. starts a conversation, but it it starts a conversation where it highlights skill. Yeah. I was the first woman on the East Coast to do this job. <laughs> That's so priceless. Right? <laughs> That's priceless. Like, how many are there now? <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> that was not the question that I was supposed to follow up with, but now I'm like... <laughs> well, remember that young woman, Dominique Moody? <laughs> She's still there. It's still hers. At every natural science museum, you see them all over the place, and mm-hmm. the natural museum stores where they have them mounted in case. You were a, in a specialty preparator. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was just the regular kind that has to like paint and stuff. <laughs> and I got a dime a piece. Oh my gosh! And that and was in the seventies. That was in the seventies. Did they just like give you a scoop of butterflies and be like, "Here you go. Here's a week of work." I don't. Yes. Oh, <laughs> for real? For real. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the most metal thing. Like, hey, I got this box of dead butterflies <laughs> in my fridge. Well, yeah, because the they gotta stay cold. They gotta stay chill. Yeah. Yep. Wow. All right. And I remember going on a date where I brought the date home to my little apartment and I had scaled up because I demanded an increase in my pay. (laughs) So, because I found out that my dime butterfly was selling for $25 up to $75 because of the amount of perfection be so good they can't ignore you. Antenna. Yeah. No fingerprints. Ooh. Perfect position. Mm-hmm. And in an alignment that was natural that I created and didn't patent. Did you do moths too or just butterflies? 
So, I expanded. <laughs> so, I got the big bucks. Because they didn't think a woman would want to do the big bucks. I said, I can do anything. Mm-hmm. They're dead, I right? Cool, bring them over. Yeah. So, every bug was done in an ever so slightly different anatomically correct position. Cool. Of course, that's very Crane, important Crane information. <laughs> they were being the Crickets. bug shape they were supposed to be. Yes. Some were this long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was the Brazilian cockroach, which can fly. Oh, yeah. And has, you can step on its back and it won't crush. And it has a mandible and bites. Right? A Peruvian moth, which is about 12 inches Ooh. and has fur on it and a bone structure. Neat. And tarantulas. So <laughs> you're I so got, proud when you say that. <laughs> yes, tarantulas, tarantulas are hard. And I got twenty five cents yeah. per bug. Hell yeah! Wow, I was in the big time. Right. <laughs> so I had my tarantulas laid out behind my sofa so that they could dry, so I could take them in. As you do. As I do. Before every day. (laughs) If you can't hang with this, we can't. We can't even. But I forgot that. I did not have a normal Uh space. So this young man is sitting on my couch. And he wants to try and make a move. And so he does one of the arm things. How'd that work out? (laughs) Well, he brushed up against what I know he never even wanted to take even a moment or a second time to reconsider what that was. In New York, you don't. No. If you touch something, if something touches you, you don't question it, examine it, no. You move. Get out of the way. (laughs) Right? I never even saw him get up. <laughs> I never saw the door open. open. But I did hear that metal door vacuum suck close. <laughs> never saw him again in life. I mean, that's one way. <laughs> huh? No bugs on your couch. Right. Prepared me. Number one, I decided with the rest of the family to explore what the West Coast was. Mm. And after the umpteenth winter in New York, I just, I couldn't stay in New York any longer. And I could not get enough of a raise to keep me afloat. So I figured California (laughs) sounds interesting. At least I won't freeze to death. Mm-hmm. However, I didn't know San Francisco. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't so easy to research back then. Right, right. <laughs> Drove out, and San Francisco was an amazing city. Unlike yeah. any other city I, I was familiar with on the East Coast. And What it, year did you get there? I got remember? there 77, 78. Mm, okay. Lived... At first, kind of out near, in in a more suburban place Uh where my mom had gotten a place. And then my sister and I moved in closer to the Haight-Ashbury on Fell Street 
mm-hmm. right next yeah. to Golden Gate Park. And eventually I moved into that community, the Haight-Ashbury, but it was after its heyday. Right. However, I moved into the Mr. Henry Haight house. No wow. way! <laughs> right at Cole. When I wow. see a place uh-huh. and I walk by it every day, I make a mention. One day, I'm going to be in that place in some way, shape, or form. And I worked as a, at the time, as an illustrator, I did stained glass, I worked at a law firm, and I did custom framing. I got all of those jobs, just like I did in New York, walking in and telling them, I will give you one week free. If you don't find that you need me after that week, you can pay me for the time that I worked, or I can be on the payroll. Good strategy. Ballsy. I always got it. Because I may not have had it on the resume that I did it, but I knew I had the skill set. So I would study in that one week everything that was done in that store, in in that business, and I would fill the gap. So it wasn't even a, it did not have, you know, a stated, oh, you're coming into this job. Right. This was a job that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. You carved that niche, and then you filled it yourself. <clears throat> and you fill it yourself. Yeah. And proved that you were important. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I did that. But ultimately, I knew I really needed to be more fully creative in my work. That, you know, working in a law firm just oh, wasn't yeah. what I was meant Too to do. Too stuck up. And so the way in which serendipitously that time tends to happen, even my uh, custom framing work, which I loved, mm-hmm. and it was a, there was a gallery, and I got that part of it, and I was a real, I was the upfront people person. But I found myself fired from that job. Fired because at that point, it was there had been a complaint that somehow my attitude shifted from the way I responded to customers. I didn't know it at the time, but I was starting to lose my eyesight. And because of that loss of sight, that was barely something I recognized that right. I had 2020-2010 sight most of my life up until the late 20s. And so when it started to deteriorate, the person I used to know and might welcome at the door had to get to the desk before it triggered Mm. and and mirrored that I knew who was in front of me. But to them, it just seems like you got to get five feet closer. It was aloofness. Uh, Wow. In a changing community... Um, that at the time was gentrifying in, in uh, uh, San Francisco um, and was at the time a predominantly gay community mm-hmm. and therefore very sensitive to issues about people responding to them in a yes. certain way. 
even the owners and the entire staff, I was the only straight black woman mm -hmm. in it. And so therefore, I, always the bar had to be Hi. met in terms of uh, can you work within this community and then for them, can you accept me? Then months of that, my sister and I started our own business because we refuse to eat the government cheese. Right. Mm, sad. <laughs> and they were throwing it in the ocean off of San Francisco at that time. So the last thing we wanted to do was eat what they then yeah, were throwing right. uh -huh. out. But my mother, again, as wise woman as she is, said to us during our our one of our dinners where we're sobbing and like oh my god lamenting that we both found ourselves unemployed at the same time mm. but I lived in this beautiful apartment that was fairly affordable at that time and she said you have more creativity in your baby thumbnail than most people have do something with it so that night we came home and I drew up, we brainstormed some ideas, tattered the ball as we called it, and we came up with odd jobs and made that a business. Cool. An odd jobs business. Odd jobs business. All the things that most people didn't want to do, right. we would creatively approach and do them. And we said as our byline, we even do windows. <laughs> but what we did in it was had these creative outlets. Mm -hmm. We would redo your house creatively. We would edit and curate your house. We wouldn't get rid of anything, but if you want it and needed that service, we can come in and rework it for way less than any interior designer. And it's you. We will create your space as a portrait of who you are. <clears throat> and we did everything. We cared for pets. We cared for children. But we did it in the way that we always had the dignity and possessed our own timetable. We did advertisements on this flyer, and the flyer showed, you know, those little artists met mannequins mm -hmm. yeah right we had these hands and to each finger was tied a string and to each string was a mannequin and each mannequin had a different job <laughs> odd jobs that's so great and then we had pull tabs ah. and we put them all around the city and then we had our first six months filled up we never advertised again in six years it was all word of mouth. That's awesome. They all had to meet our our payment. Right. Uh, we were, at the time, I think the minimum wage may have been about $5 an hour. It was the early right. 80s. Uh -huh. We did seven fifty each and above. If you got us on the weekend, it's $15 an hour. It's double. If you got us on a holiday... $21 an hour mm. and we got it. Wow. You gotta want that cute house. <laughs> right. right. Are your family coming over? Do you want them to think you have taste? Let us come do your house for you. Yes. Got it. And then once a year in this historic 
house that then apartment that on the top floor that had these bowed bay windows that opened out to mm -hmm. a balcony onto the Haight-Ashbury. We didn't even have TV. We just watched the street. Heck yes. And You could watch that little park forever. Right. And we had <laughs> repainted. We had refinished it. And once a year, we gave the most astounding party for all of our clients. <laughs> and they came over and just... We're in awe of our space. We never wanted people to think that since we did certain kinds of work, that we were somehow uh, demeaned uh, in our work. Right? You're never and less than just because you're doing a job. Yeah. yeah. And particularly as black women mm -hmm. doing that kind of work in the mid-80s, we, we had to make that social adjustment so that people understood this was not what you think. Right. Um, and, and to gain that dignity in the work. That it wasn't the work. It, mm -hmm. was, it was demanding what the value of that work was and also demanding the respect of us as people. Right. And so by the end of that, is when the full force of my vision started to shift. I had finished with working on a project with a group of women building a small house in Sebastopol. And we took old, you know, reclaimed, and this we did because we partnered with other women contractors mm. and other workers to do larger jobs. And in that, we developed friendships, networks, and so this project where a contractor, Susie Papa Nicholas, was teaching a program for women only who wanted to develop home building skills. Fantastic. Not so, homemaking, home building. Home building. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like it. And, and so they ranged in age between 60, I mean 16 and 60 something. And we went out to Sebastopol every other weekend, and there was no electricity, mm -hmm. no services, nothing. And I came into it just as they had finished the foundation, and we took all the salvage windows and doors and designed the house off of it. It was uh, a cool. multi-story, beautiful French doors, French windows, multi-level, but off the grid. And but not off the grid in terms of solar or anything. Oh right, fancy. yeah. Just it still was contemporary. Just off yeah. the grid in terms of it was not reliant, and therefore our tools had to be hand tools. Mm -hmm. And I think our only mechanized tool was a chainsaw. Right. And unless you could hold it out perpendicular to your body, mm -hmm. you weren't allowed to use it. Right. And so it was an amazing experience to be within a group of, of women who tackled and, and decided just to pursue this. And then instead of it being a paid class, it became a voluntary share uh, right. in which once it was built, we shared in the experience of using it mm -hmm. on a time basis. And so these 
network skills, uh, connections with people, by the time I realized that I had a can of paint, and we're talking about doing large commercial jobs and bidding on them with other contractors. So once you bid on the job, that payment is set. Locked in. Shown. Yep. It's locked in. Yep. And we were doing working on on a restaurant and um, a well known restaurant. And we were doing all the back spaces of the restaurant. And usually I was the detailer. And so I did all of the finish work. I could see and know whether a five gallon bucket that has no label on it wet was whether it was flat Eggshell. or enamel <laughs> yeah. yep. wet and this job I didn't and we ended up painting something that should have been enamel flat flat because you couldn't see it any longer they couldn't see it any right. longer. And then what really triggered it is, now we go home and we did all of this work for six years without a vehicle. We got on public trance with our five-gallon buckets and Whoa. and and our our overalls and our uh-huh. our caps, and we rode that because we were supporting our sister who did a homesteading in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica with her four children. Wow. And we sent money every year, every month. Right. And so we would go home, and because we didn't have a television, I read. That was 1984, and I happened to have been reading. George Orwell. 1984. 1984. (laughs) And I got about a third of the way in, and I was reading a page, and I could not for the life of me figure out what was on that page and so I read it over and over and over again and then finally I said something is wrong yeah I don't know and then with the paint and we had to then repaint it right you can't just leave it right which meant the 10 days it took to do this job we didn't get paid for it because we had to yeah, still honor the you know, original payment and supply the paint. And that's when I thought, okay, I have to do something mm-hmm. uh, about this. And my sister said, finally, join the family. Everyone, all 11 of us, all wear glasses. Finally, <laughs> you're on the same page. <laughs> One of us. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I go... Oh, so so much for being the odd one out now. Right, right. I mean, oh my God, so you I'm joined everybody. I go to an optometrist, and he's like, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it ain't fixable with what I got. Got it. Oh, that's reassuring. Yeah. Yeah, that makes you feel so, great as a patient. I'm still mm. not on the spectrum. Yes, I ended up finding that I had a rare form of uh, legal blindness that was um, progressive, and it is the juvenile version of macular degeneration. At the time, it was referred to as juvenile macular 
dystrophy mm. in, in, instead of degeneration. Um, and I was in my late 20s. They said it probably was actually activated in my mid-20s, but I had such a control over my visual kind of exercise as an artist right. that I delayed that. My brain was still seen and compensated. compensated. That's cool. Brains yeah. are neat. Brains are neat. <laughs> and brains are... Because this particular kind of defect is in the brain. It is not the eye. Oh and therefore, can't wear glasses. Yeah. They don't correct You're work. like, I just got to think about this being clear. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, of course, the big terror is that as a visual, the mm-hmm. expressive person, oh my God, no. I cannot hear the blind word. I still see stuff. Yeah. And I'm an artist. Can't do that to me. (laughs) Don't. No. I have had a lot of challenges. Right. There's a lot. I tick off a lot of boxes. Please don't have me tick off another box. Yeah. I really don't. I want to tick off the box that says lottery winner. (laughs) Yes. But, and I was really terrified to tick off. It's a social box, and that's one that says disabled. Oh, yes. And I didn't know what to do with that. Right. That, to me, was was very uncomfortable, and it is a socially discomforting thing that it shouldn't, because at some point in our lives, it is going to be an experience that most of us will have. And yet, I, it be, it's such a social stigma that I was afraid to embrace that and what that would mean, particularly as a black woman, yes. you know, in America. It's like, who needs age. another layer? Right. You know? And so, therefore, I was like, oh, no, uh-uh, I can't work with this. And yet, I ended up having to work into it before health care. Yeah. Even though we did, we did very well, I one year we... Um, we did $65,000 that year. Uh, we did an average of 10 houses a year, and wow. we took a one-month vacation every year mm. to travel. That's fine. We lived very well, and we supported a lot of our family, extended family. My sister and I are both mm-hmm. unmarried, and neither of us had children. And so the idea that all of a sudden it I might have to become dependent was terrifying. I feel that. <laughs> I felt I would become a burden. Yeah. Um, there were real social challenges to that, and I was I, I was really frightened. So one of the things once I got that diagnosis, and they actually said, "You are legally blind. This is a form of blindness." But because I could still see stuff, Mm -hmm. I couldn't see the details of stuff, and that had to change. But I had been an illustrator, and I was a high-realism illustrator. I could see your eyelash, and I would draw it twitchy. Right. But for me, one of the 
problems with that in that highly uh, kind of westernized approach mm -hmm. to visualization is that although it was technically incredibly skillful, it didn't contain what I felt was the kind of core and spirit because I was so in tune with looking at the details. Mm -hmm. You're a perfectionist. I was a perfectionist in that, in the same skill set to render mm -hmm. bugs and to do anatomy. And at Pratt, I was being tracked as a medical illustrator. Wow. For that expertise. Yeah. To me, I was going to lose that. But on the other side, I thought, what could be on the other side of that? Mm -hmm. And can my my creativity make the bridge. I felt the creativity could make the bridge much faster than the social one. Yes. And so I did that. And because I had not graduated from Philadelphia College of Art or Pratt Institute, but had accumulated almost three and a half years from those two, but all of it done before the age of 17, mm -hmm. I enrolled through a program for the disabled and older students into UC Berkeley and got it. Good for you. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, <What's that? laughs> so, so that was, you know, an astounding thing. I had never gone to an academic school. Right though and that was terrifying to go to back to school and be almost 30 and legally blind and legally blind because at that point I could no longer read the six months it took to diagnose it mm -hmm. there was a drop from being 20 what they thought might have been about 2060 mm -hmm. when I first started to notice the problem to 20 250. Oh no. Whoa. And it is now 2350. So I have ultimately lost 60% of my eyesight. What I have left is 40%, which is just the outside, and that's your peripheral. All the central sight is what you use for detail, for recognition, for communication and for seeing color and mm -hmm. depth of field. So I now function without depth of field, um, with reduced color, and with no facial recognition. Wow. And, and so that is why it's considered a, a legal blindness. Because your other senses have to compensate for yeah. you to like... And, and, and typical eyeglasses will not correct that. No. no at all. You can use magnification for text and the icon of this kind of visual experience is that people can no longer read. I went into Berkeley and got in and had no way of reading. I was in the practice of art and art history as a double major. <laughs> I had never seen a computer. I had never seen a calculator because I graduated in 1974. The Dark Ages. Slide rule. 
at best. At best. I did not meet some of the requirements. Mm. And when I went into the Equal Opportunity Office, they basically said, although congratulations that you've gotten into Berkeley, we just want you to know that you are not Berkeley material. That if you think you can get through this school, you're fooling yourself. And you probably should just go home and make some pots. <gasps> wow. Now you're like, making. Now, <laughs> what I also realized is I was now almost 30. And the person sitting across the desk from me was about the same age. As I said, thank you very much. Left the office, walked right into another one and said, I will need assistance as a disabled student in the disabled student program, as a returning student who is over the age of mm -hmm. traditional. You know, traditional students. Oh, by the way, in that other office, mm -hmm. she said, but you have to understand, we will basically still make money off of you, whether you come or not, whether you make it or not. Wow. So I was shocked at the way in which they were treating students, yes. but I also knew I had to be the one to make the inroad first before I could yeah. address this in any larger manner. Getting in there, getting into the various programs, meeting a core group of people. There was one woman, another black woman in there, 75 years old, her grandchildren were both attending the school. Wow. That's badass. <laughs> right. Now, if I, you know. That's good. That you, you get inspired. Heck yeah. yeah. And um, a disabled student, one who had gotten his doctorate there, and he has to lay completely flat on, on a wheelchair that's completely flat and speak through an adaptation. I think he had MS. And he was astounding. He was, but he said to me, you know, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes because, number one, unfortunately, they can't see it. Said, they see me coming, but they can't see it in you, and they're going to question you all the time. Be ready for it. And you're going to have to learn how to explain it and how to not make that explanation stop everything that was supposed to happen in your encounter. And so I had to learn those things. And so through the African American Studies Department, I took a drama. Mm. I learned how to speak and how to define where I was so that I wouldn't fall off stage, where my audience was even if I couldn't see them. Right. And to be comfortable projecting my voice. I ended up having to come back as a freshman, even though I had my first life drawing class at the age of nine, and that I had been drawing the figure because I was drawing my siblings by the time I was seven. And by the time I was eight, we even drew each other in the wall. It's called accreditation. <laughs> Never got that, but Just I ended up in a one-on-one -on -one course and the students were like, 
she comes in here she's got a portable cane because I didn't know the campus mm -hmm. we thought she was in the wrong class and told her so now she's sitting in the front of the class drawing in a one-on-one -on -one class she, she is clearly better than better. us <laughs> yeah I wanted to hate her but I can't let's go ask her how she does it right but it disrupted the class and so I told the instructor, who was younger than I, <laughs> I had been doing this for a long time. Uh -huh. She said, yes, I can see that. You can probably teach the class, including her. Mm -hmm. And I said, so how do we address this? Because the school will not give me the credits right. that I deserve. So she said, let's talk to the department head and mm -hmm. show her your portfolio and in the end for four out of the six years at Berkeley that it took for me to get my BA I did independent study wow yeah good for you that's the best yeah <laughs> the rules can be broken yes all the time once you know what they are they can be broken mm -hmm. and the same it was considered a real privilege for me at the age of nine to go into a private art school and be it seemed like a real privilege because I was also the first black child mm -hmm. in an all-white art school and to have to make that even when students didn't show up for two months in protest right I still went and I got a very classically trained mm -hmm. experience. Now, how to take that classically tra trained experience and flip it on its head when mm -hmm. I can no longer see that way. Going back to school opened up a space where I could go back, and this was my intention. I am coming back. I absolutely know my, ma my major from day one. Mm -hmm. There's no guessing, mm -hmm. but I'm coming back so that I can play yeah. and find my way through this new site. Mm -hmm. It's like being a student all over again and relearning yes. something all over again with a completely different set of circumstances. Yes, and it was wonderful to do that. I started to see things in a way, I'm an avid dreamer. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing things in my waking life that I used to only see in my dreaming space. Mm. But now I could actually see them because I couldn't see. Right. So, so they would just manifest would, themselves. Right. It would at it any would, time. You would you I called it my altered sight. Right. Because when I told people it's a form of blindness, and uh, no, 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 I can't, I, no. <laughs> but if it's altered, then there's almost an acceptance that it's different. Right. And it's explainable that it's different. So what I had to learn and learn at Berkeley was how to describe what I do, what I see, how I live my life, how I make my choices creatively. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that skill set before. And I was so happy to get through it because six years is a lot. 
Yeah. That's a grind. Yeah. And especially um, when you're not seventeen. Right. <laughs> right. So by that time I was in my mid thirties. I really needed to kind of push it outside of the school. I had my own studio on campus and then I had my first major art studio in Oakland because mm-hmm. all the artists were having to leave San yeah. Francisco. Migrate down. Right. And because I my sister and I had done such a beautiful job on that apartment when the 99-year-old original owner died and his nephew took it over and thought it was the biggest burden until he walked up the steps and saw our apartment. And you you could see in his eyes, ching. So he ended up replicating everything we'd done within that apartment into the rest of the building. Uh, Which is flattering in some ways and insulting in others. And then (laughs) doubled. Yeah, there's the insulting part. Our our rent. And so we couldn't stay there any longer. Right. But once again, whenever I've been pushed out Mm -hmm. of some place, I have found a way to carve in to another. My experience and I did not, I love the idea that you could both craft and practice on the fine art level at the same time. Right. And so none of those were in a comfortable setting in the larger scope of what was being looked at as conceptual art in the 80s. Right. Or being shown anywhere. Right. Yeah. So I also wanted to do assemblage art, and there was no one there um, who I could practice with. So by looking at all of these, they became my teacher. You made your own cohort. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I think then that is what they saw as being this academic, this research and study, and and yet tangible, hands-on practice at the same time. And of course, Phi Beta Kappa, you can only be nominated and brought in. It's got to be anonymous. It's got to be somebody already in, and da 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 da. And I go there, and there is this room full of academic students, and everyone is suited up. Serious. Suit, it's very yeah. serious. And it's the social science and political science and this and that. And you're like, I got paint on these clothes, I'm pretty sure, still. But <laughs> I tried to just, I, I had this vintage coat on and and this head wrap, um, this this black galay, you know, and my cane uh-huh. because they had laced um, cords electrical cords all along the the floor I was you know that's not cool and I was like oh my god all I need is like Mm -hmm. to fall on my face or something and then I spotted the only other student in the art department that was also getting it and she had just broken her leg and she was a student so she had a cast all the way up to 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 her hip oh geez and so she was wearing this like daisy duke cutoffs because that's all that fits that. over the cast, yeah. Right, and and then she had these piercings on her ear that wrapped all the way around. She had her multiple yeah. piercing, and she had her head shaved, and then a mohawk. 
They're like, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm going to just hang out with Jenny over there. It's fine. Yes. So we both hung out. And then after all of these people, and there were gugabs of people, and they were getting all these, and I'm like, looking, we're looking at each other and saying, you know, where do we fit in? Yeah. I don't understand. And so finally they said, and finally, last but not least, we are offering the Phi Beta Kappa Award for the first time in more than 25 years to the art department for two students. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, one that's me. Yeah. And then one that's a gimp and one that's blonde. Yep. Right. So I told her <laughs> to get in front. So she's on the crutches. <laughs> right. And I'm following her to make sure I don't trip. Right. And we take forever to get up front. And finally, the guy was up there and he's like, he's rustling his papers and everything. And, you know, and he finally, and he, he pulls us both up. <laughs> Finally, you got here, and I said, "But it, you know, if it took 25 years, this is nothing." <laughs> and everyone in the room busted out. And for the first time that evening, you know, mm-hmm. people right. laughed, yeah. and it felt good. And so, it, you know, so they talked about the fact that it had not been offered in 25 years. Right. And that was to me astounding. I still didn't quite understand. I didn't certainly understand what does this do, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, I get some money. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I get but a cool <laughs> cord at graduation. <laughs> right. I get a key. Right. Yeah, right. Um, making these constant hurdles. I think what I learned throughout my life is that number one, I will always have these hurdles. It helped me understand that these hurdles will always come. How I deal with them and how I jump over them mm-hmm. was very important. So when it came that LA, that 80% of my income was going into just paying rent. Mm-hmm. I remember taking the GIST workshops. Mm. To get your stuff together. <laughs> you can cuss on this show. <laughs> exclamation, exclamation. <laughs> it, it was really important to me because I started having this great momentum. And then that momentum came to a halt. And I felt like I reached a ceiling mm-hmm. as a black woman artist. My work was in museums, I I had a collector base, but I could not keep up with the cost of living in LA. And then something very strange started to happening with the teaching, the grants dried up. I could not teach whether it was kindergarten or UCLA extension, not enough students would come through and I felt like the canary in the coal mine. Mm in 2005 and I said something is coming something's gotta give the the pike yep and whatever it is I have to be ready for it so that I can still be a working artist so that I could approach teaching on a whole nother level and that it's not dependent on making this meager teaching income right in order to connect to community 
or to work with young people. Mm -hmm. That I have to do a paradigm shift in how I approach these areas, but I have to keep practicing. Absolutely. And so the decision came down, do you hold on to a studio, even though you are now doing installation works, even mm -hmm. though you are now... But that's my studio! These, yes. And that, <laughs> you know, space. sacred space. Yeah. And once again, it would, for me, was like the eyesight. That's sacred space. Don't yep. mess with my eyes. <laughs> right? But then they did. But then they did. Right. It did. Life mm -hmm. did. And so, yes, I was going to have to make a decision on that. Back in the 80s when I helped create that tiny house in Sebastopol. Right. And our next project was supposed to be my rolling home that I shelved when I got the diagnosis. Right. Because how can I have a rolling home if I can't drive it? And it took me 30 years to figure out <laughs> that you don't have to drive it. You yeah. drive the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you call your sister and be like, hey, you owe me. <laughs> <laughs> she drives. She has been the driving force in support. And so I decided what I have to do over time, I will build it first, and the driver will come. Yes. Like Field of Dreams. Yes. <laughs> I like it. Some of my drivers have come from guess who? Side Street Side Projects. Street projects. <laughs> I have had my first drivers. Cool. And I'm hoping that in the near future I can get a permanent driver mm -hmm. that would be dedicated and understand what it is I'm now doing. Now that it is fully fledged, my 1950 Ford X-Tow truck being refined to pull the Nomad. Mm -hmm. And as the DMV in Pasadena said, you know that you will be a spectacle. <laughs> You're like, I already was. Thank yeah, you. Right. And then This I is remember, just a house for the spectacle to sleep. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember what my mother said. Why settle for more? Absolutely. Yep. When you can be the spectacle. That's right. The Nomad is my full-time home and it is on a trailer bed and built up what they call stick built out of wood on top of that trailer bed which is the foundation and it looks like a tiny house uh -huh. most people are now familiar with the tiny house movement yeah. i came in very early on that but it took me three years to build this and before that four years to plan it plan where I would build, mm -hmm. how I would build, whom I would work with uh, to make it happen. All of that cross-pollinating, all of those skill sets that were developed. This was the largest, most challenging experience and the, one of the most rewarding because I think it really is a human need to have to craft one's own living space. And in many cultures, everyone knows how to build. Yes. Because everyone has to know how to build because no one's going to be building for you. And we are living in a culture where we now have this 
insane epidemic of homelessness and a large portion of that population are people who are creatives or who don't fit in they are finding themselves in this horrible predicament that is one of trauma social Mm -hmm. trauma I could see it coming because most people find themselves in the predicament. This is not something that people uh, sign up for. Sign up for. <laughs> this was not the plan. It yeah. is not the plan. Mm-hmm. But they fall through the crack. And I knew that it would be a challenge for me not to fall through the crack. There were too many of my boxes checked. Yes. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Jelly Arts. G-E-L-L-I Jelly Arts. Makes an extensive line of tools for artists working in paper craft and can be found at major retailers nationwide, including Michaels, Joanne Fabrics, Hobby Lobby, and more. Careful listeners know that my undergrad degree was in printmaking, and that's when I fell in love with their gelatin plate tool. Hey, printmakers, you don't have to make any more trays of jello to achieve those breathtaking layered effects. Jelly's gel printing plates look and feel like gelatin, but they're durable, reusable, and store at room temperature. Jelly has you covered with a range of sizes, and they all clean up with a simple swipe of a baby wipe. No hazardous chemicals or solvents necessary. And you can usually use the Sunday newspaper coupon on their products at your local retailer. Hey, just saying. Check out jellyarts.com and snoop on their awesome line of products today. Describe how you operate as an artist now. You find a residency Mm -hmm. and you have certain criteria. Maybe you could actually talk about what your art practice is today and how you're doing residencies. And that was part of the plan when I realized Mm -hmm. that this would become not just a a home, but because of my assemblage work and my installative work, that I could craft this space as my art. It was too Mm -hmm. small for my art to fit in, Right. but it wasn't too small to be to fit into my art. Yeah. And when I realized that that mm. I had the luxury of living inside of my own art, yes, <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm on the right track. And then I realized that then this practice, this way of practicing, this way of being placed, being invited in, mm-hmm. would happen if I was to, do, to describe my way of living as a mobile artist in residence, that I could then, too, move and be placed inside of communities that ordinarily would not be able to house and and do a residency with an artist. They did not have the setup. They may not have had enough resources to do both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one thing I did know by building this structure and living in it that 
very rarely did anyone ever expect me to walk through its doors. And you're like, this porch. is my house. I made yeah. this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Expect me. And, and it's exquisite. The, For those of you, of course, so who cannot cool. see it, yes. it is exquisite. And the collaboration that had to take place to make it happen, mm-hmm. I had to trust not only in myself to be okay with putting the seed of my idea out there right. and taking the kind of time it needed to make it happen well and to be able to follow through on it mm-hmm. even though it took way beyond the expected time. But by doing all of that, collaborating with people who mm-hmm. were excited about it, volunteers, opening up to a community, but also in the interim, recognizing how my own personal story and then a collective story Mm -hmm. overlaid on top of this house. And I knew that as time went on and the social predicament continued and that I couldn't take this and just said, okay, now I have my personal space. I'm good. I'm I'm done. I'm done. (laughs) I knew that I would have to address this larger social situation. Now, always my art had a social component to Mm -hmm. it. I was not as familiar with the ideas behind social practice until I met people like Rick Lowe of Project Row House. Or we met. Yes. (laughs) Or Side Street Projects. Mm -hmm. And when then I started to understand what this was about and the fact that it fits so comfortably into what I was always doing, already doing, mm-hmm. but didn't understand the background of it, I now then felt I could embrace it. Unexpected things, mm-hmm. I carry no studio with me, just my supplies, my tools battery pack tools Mm -hmm. Um, but I carry no objects no found material and I no longer work inside even my truck with its back boxed out um, is to basically situate my driver when we go on long journeys Mm -hmm. or a guest that can come and visit with me as and still have their special space in yes. this very intimate... Yes. Yeah. And, and so by then opening that up to these possibilities, all kinds of invitations have brought me in, in unexpected ways. In Joshua Tree at mm-hmm. the Harrison House of Music, Arts, and Ecology up in the high desert where it, it's almost an off-grid situation. Right. Where I practice even the art of compost... So doing a sunken garden around a a 52-foot diameter horse corral. And, you know, working with Eva Sortez, you know, Sortez, who was really inviting musicians and composers initially, but decided to expand on it Mm -hmm. uh, with the land being so important as a permaculture site and finding the materials on the site. It's unexpected. You don't right. have any preconceived notion. You can't pre-plan because you, you don't know what you're gonna discover. Right. Yeah. But the minute I saw bottles 
<laughs> and old wood, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm You're home. I'm set. I'm home. I'm set. Yeah. And so that serendipity, you have to trust. Yes. And then it takes you from there, and I go to New Orleans with an invitation to go to Prospect 4 Satellite at Xavier University and to go there as the first long trip to then be placed at a university where although I could get placed physically I could not stay over so each place I had no idea where I would stay right. that night <laughs> that I pulled in and sometimes you have to just trust it mm -hmm. and sometimes it's very uncomfortable and awkward and yet the invitation that came through was extraordinary. Meeting uh, Makpo Kanard, yeah. uh, who was one of the educators and, and professors at Xavier, and, and Ron Bechet, who was the director mm -hmm. at the time. She invited me to stay in her studio. I stayed as a guest in someone who I didn't know for five months. <laughs> and guess yeah. what else? Her name, Mapo, means Master Potter. <gasps> love it. I love how life works. I know, it's so interesting. Every day in New Orleans was serendipity. Right. All over the place. The more I do this, I also had a side trip to Tuskegee mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. At, at the Healing Arts Festival. I could not take the Nomad. They couldn't afford that budget. Right. But I made the connect. Mm -hmm. You know, I spoke at MOCA um, at the Geffen when they wanted a conversation with artists and activists and people who needed the kind of support through the arts um, through talking about this new quote unquote arts district. Right. <laughs> and yeah. how it dis displaced many yeah. creative people in the process. Yep. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things that I feel I now have to do. This is just part of jumping those hurdles. So right now you're in residence at Side Street Projects and you're working on a project. Can yes. you talk about what that project is? Yes. Our Garden of Dreams. Emily, who was so supportive of me and building the Nomad up at the Zorthian Ranch in Altadena, um, and she really championed what I was doing because it was mobile. Yes. Well, Side Street is all mobile. So. Right. And so <laughs> you fit perfectly. You, you adopt in yes. all of the little mobile creatures. Yes. And I was one of them. Y'all get together. I was real happy. But she said, let's do a project together. And this is one of those things where the people you meet and work with network and hone those skills of mm -hmm. relationships and bonds and you do collaborations uh, with them. And so, so our Garden mm -hmm. of Dreams is another mobile project in which we took a, a, a small trailer, uh, eight and a half by 10 feet, and have um, created a basically a greenhouse on wheels. And it is made out, out of salvaged uh, wood windows and mm -hmm. doors. Um, some that were found on the street, others that were donated, and then some that were found and bought secondhand. And the combination of those led into a series of workshops that were planned in, 
to work with the community and these were free to the community. They were both designed for young people and children, but also for adults. And they were skill-based. So not every workshop was one where you took home a little object. Sometimes what you took home was a skill. And sometimes that can be even um, more enriching. And particularly amongst the adults, they love that. When I did the window glazing portion of the workshops, Mm -hmm. All of them wanted to do that. And they were fascinated about what it was. I asked them how many of them had gold wood windows in their house. Mm-hmm. How many of them had some sitting in their garage. <laughs> and, and then how many of them thought, what the heck should I do with them? But also exploring how beautifully made these windows and doors in a city like Pasadena, where most of the infrastructure was built in the 1920s. Mm-hmm the craftsmanship of these windows can really not be replicated. And so by honoring these past craftsmen Mm -hmm. and bringing them back into new life, even if they are no longer considered efficient, they are still valuable. And relevant because they're now on a new thing we're all excited about. Yes. Yeah. And so by then putting not only working on the pieces, but then combining all of those pieces to make an object that is not just beautiful to look at, but functions. Mm-hmm. And so it will function as a one part of the fleet here at, at Side Street Projects and the woodworking buses and things that the community would love to um, have as skill development. Right. And so this tiny structure will engage uh, people in the practice of doing container gardening. And not just container garden of a nice pot of flowers, but a container garden that can actually feed you. A sustainable container. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's neat. And so in the inside of this lovely little greenhouse, it will, it has pots that sit into the shelf all the windows open up so that people can come up to the windows almost like it's a a vending cart and it was inspired from vending carts of the past and of the fruit sellers Mm -hmm. and the people who were always a part of the community but on the grassroots level Mm -hmm. side and these mainstays really need to come back We need to hone those skills to say, yes, we can do this. And by uh, offering those experiences to people, do that. You may not be able to do a full-fledged structure like we have done with our Garden Mm -hmm. of Dreams. You might be able to do a small tabletop version. Or take a window and put family photos in it. Right. um, And bring it back into the house. Yeah. And so these enrich our lives and in mm-hmm. all kinds of ways. And I love that. I feel the art of, of triggering a creative response in a community that does not necessarily deem themselves as artists, mm-hmm. but can embrace their creativity. It's a much needed skill set that we all now need. And this new generation that are working in the wood buses and crafting 
their first toy yeah. are going to get those skills over time and they will be the ones to build their own homes in the future. Yes. So we don't have to wait for affordable housing. We will build our Them own ourselves. affordable housing. So I know that we've been talking for a while, but I want you to address one more thing because yes. you're also working on a public art project yes. here in Los Angeles. So could you briefly describe that project and where it is so that people could keep an eye out for it? Well, it's called Destination Crenshaw, and I have received an invitation and commission to be a part of that. It is my second large public artwork, although I've done smaller, mm -hmm. more temporary public artworks um, outside of the Martin Luther King Hospital project, mm -hmm. which I did a few years back. Um, then this one is another major project along the Crenshaw Corridor, which will uh, go in step with the metro a new metro line going out to LAX. And it's a community, uh, Crenshaw and Lamert Park, right. that is really endeared to me because it was actually the first neighborhood that I ever came in contact mm -hmm. with when I came to visit Southern California. Did the, um, uh, the National Association of African American Artists right. um, at the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. Yeah. And they, it was a large craft and arts fair. Mm -hmm. And that got my introduction. And it was also the very first community that I took the Nomad to for its tour around Los Angeles. Ah. Was Lamert Park. Right. And across from the Vision Theater. That's cool. And so for the for the theater festival that they have each year. And so to so me, it's the perfect place I'm for coming you. back yeah. into the city, coming back to a neighborhood that I had wanted to do some form of artist residency. Um, and there are some things that haven't been quite confirmed yet with the project. However, what I do feel is that the invitation mm -hmm. to do something of this nature to do something of this scale for a community I love. Yeah. And to speak on behalf of its incredible creative uh, history mm -hmm. that it is steeped in, I feel really honored to be a part of it. Right. Well, I want to thank you, Dominique. We have talked your ear off, or vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> but we always close with... Hi, I'm Megan Flanders, and I'm an artist. Hi, I'm Karen Atkinson, and I'm an artist. And I'm Dominique Moody, and I'm an artist, too. Thank you. <laughs>Thank you very much to my co-host, Karen Atkinson, our wonderful guest, Dominique Moody, and Emily at Side Street Projects for putting this together. You can catch more information about The Nomad and its journeys at dominiquemoody.com and you can find us at artworldpodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And as always, be nice to the interns and go make good art.